Well, good morning again, everyone. I uh, am excited this morning to wrap up uh, what's been a wonderful study on the book of Philippians. And one thing I hear consistently that I really appreciate, um, I, I do appreciate feedback from the messages and free, uh, feedback from the structure of how we're doing things. And one of the things I consistently hear is, I really like the little notes that come inside the, um, the, the, the bulletins. And so what I'm going to really ask you to do today is to take some extra notes. And I'm going to prompt you with those here to start this message. And then we're going to follow through with the message. I wanted to figure out a way, and I thought deeply about this all week. How do I sort of tie all of this together? How do I give um, both a sermon that is going to address the joy in giving while also tying all of Philippians together from our four-week study? And I believe through... Uh, uh, the, the peace of the Holy Spirit and, and, and the guidance um, that came, I think I have the way to do that. And this is what I want to do to start. I want you to write down on the top of your notes simply these words, Jesus is the way. <laughs> Jesus is the way. He is the message. And I want you to have that word in your mind as we go through this sermon today. Jesus is the way. He's the message. It all comes back to Jesus. Jesus is the message. He's the way. Paul, who is the author of this letter that we have been studying so deeply this last month and what you've been discussing in your life groups and hopefully what you've been thinking and, and praying through in these last four weeks, Paul is the messenger. Okay? Jesus is the message. Paul is the messenger, and he's sitting in prison delivering this message. It's why he's there. And if I do my job right today, you're going to be able to fill in the next line. And that is simply this. After you write, Paul is the messenger, I want you to simply write this as well as a reminder for you. And so am I. And so are we. Because like Paul, we have a calling as Christ followers to be the message of him to this world. That's what it's all about. That's why we're gathered here this morning. That's why we do the things that we do in his name. We are the messengers, just like Paul. But the message remains Jesus. And so I have included a parable here, or part of a parable, that I want to open this message with before we get into Philippians 4, because this is how it's all going to tie together. There are two important things I want you to understand about being a Christ follower that we learn from the Bible. And it very much has to do with our level of joy in everything that we do. And today we're going to talk about that in terms of giving. And here's what prompted me to put this parable in here because I was really weighing on me throughout the week. When you have an opportunity, and I know many of you do this as part of your own personal ministries, but when you visit people in the hospital, and I'm not talking about just the broken arms you know, and the sprained ankles, those are important too, um, people need prayer and time with others when they have minor injuries and those kinds of things. But I'm talking about really being with the sick and the dying. The people who are there and they're not coming back out. When you're sitting face to face with them, there are two ways that you open up a conversation when you walk into their room and you're there to give them spiritual comfort. Question number one is simply, may I pray with you? Because if they have a depth of faith background, they'll know exactly what you're talking about and they'll welcome that. 
But sometimes you encounter people who don't speak that language, and you realize that maybe they're a little further away from God than you would have anticipated. And then that leads to another important question. Where are you with God? And just as importantly, where are you with Jesus? And it opens up some amazing conversation and some amazing opportunities because they're down to just a handful of days. Maybe they're down to a month. Maybe they're down to not very much time. And it's important to have this conversation. And so I think about that. And I think about our role in that because of this parable. And it's so critically important. It's in Matthew 20, 8 through 16. This isn't in your notes, but if you want to follow along in your Bibles, I want to share this with you. Here's a little backstory to this parable before I read the last eight, eight lines here. Jesus opens this illustration by saying, This is heaven. This is like heaven. This is how you see heaven. And he begins to talk about workers working in a field for what is called a denarii or, or a day's wage. And he talks about how the different hours of the day have passed. And as each hour passes, more and more workers come to do the work. And I want you to hear how he describes Father, the Father, God, when it comes to these workers. This is right in your notes here. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Already you can see how this is going to get turned upside down, don't you? The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon and came and received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only an hour, they said, and you... You have made them equal to us to have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. That is such a powerful tool to sit down with a dying person and share with them if they haven't accepted Christ. And I want to bring this up as an important piece of how we see our faith and how we see our outreach to people. And I wanted to use that first. We're going to come back to it in a little bit. But Jesus is making something very clear through this illustration. Our salvation, our place in heaven, has nothing to do with our works, it has nothing to do with anything that we've done, our own merit, our own worth. Heaven can only be entered by accepting the gift of grace offered by Jesus' death and resurrection. He truly is the way, the truth, and the light. He is the message. And it doesn't matter if you accepted Christ and were baptized when you were eight and lived a long, fruitful Christian life or, when you, or if you were on your deathbed at 90 and you finally make that confession, you finally make that choice, God's grace is big enough for all of us. And that's why we never stop pursuing. That's why we never stop seeking the lost. That's why we never stop trying to spread this word. Because it doesn't matter when. It only matters that 
when it comes to accepting Christ. And I think that is so important for us to frame up the end of this Philippian study. Like I said, we're going to return to this in just a second. But it only matters that you come through Jesus, not when. And here's what Paul's witness means for you and for me. And this is the second piece that I want to tie into this. Did you know that Paul was part of one of the most notorious sects of Pharisees? In his earlier days, he was bent on eradicating all Christians. He was truly a persecutor of the Christian church. He was a persecutor of individual Christians. And within the New Testament, Paul's conversion experience is discussed in both his own letters and in the book that we know as the book of Acts. We're going to study Acts throughout the start of next year. But according to both of these sources, there was a time in his early life when Paul severely persecuted early Christians. And the book of Acts details his conversion in chapter 9. This is a great story if you haven't refreshed yourself with it for a while. Go back and read Acts 9 this week. Because Acts 9 describes the moment when Paul gave his life to Christ. He says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul responds, who are you, Lord? And then it goes on to describe the conversion experience of Paul. And Paul goes from being a person who wants to eradicate Christians to a person who wants to do nothing but proclaim the name of Jesus. How powerful is that? Does it help us to understand the significance of this letter when we know that the story of the man who is writing it? Here is Paul writing this letter to the Philippians, a former persecutor of Christ followers, now suffering and sacrificing on the behalf of Jesus Christ. Could there be a better testimony to the power of God through faith in Jesus than a repentant sinner like Paul changing the world by proclaiming Christ? Only God can do that, right? Only Christ. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful to know and to understand? Because here are the two lessons from this as we examine the last chapter of Philippians that I want to make sure we hammer home today. Number one, it does not matter when you give your life to Jesus. It only matters that you do. And when you do, the Bible tells us that through our baptism into Christ comes the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now that Spirit guides our thoughts, guides our actions, guides our words when we continue to stay connected to God through prayer, through community, through study of his word. The late worker earned the same pay as the day laborers simply because he arrived. And that's powerful. Now, we are a farming community here, and I grew up doing a lot of farm work, helping out other people. I can't imagine what it would feel like if one of my buddies and I went to work, and let's say it was Rich and me, and we both went to work for a farmer, And Rich spent his whole day toiling in that heat, and I showed up at 4 o'clock. I helped out for about a half hour, and we walked off with the same pay. I don't think Rich is going to be real happy with me, do you? I think the people at this time completely understood what Jesus is getting at here. This has nothing to do with your work. This has everything to do with my grace. And anytime we start measuring our work, we get into dangerous territory, don't we? It's not about our work. It's about my grace, and it's sufficient for you, and it's sufficient for me. So that's item number one. Let's start right there. But here's number two. Let's take a look at the example of Paul, because I want to share with each of you, it doesn't matter where you've been. 
It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you struggle with or how many weaknesses you feel like you have. This was you before Christ. When you give your life to Christ, he can use you. God can use you for great purposes when you submit to his will. Sometimes the very things that we once struggled with through the healing grace of Christ now can become some of our greatest strengths of testimony, some of the greatest ways that we can use what we once struggled with to help other people. But it's up to us in giving our lives to Christ to prayerfully consider how he can use us to give and to give and to give. So this opens up two questions this morning in this final chapter in our study of Philippians. And they're simply this. Do you believe that God can use your life for good? And what do you have to give? We're going to explore that this morning. We're going to dive deeply into that. A very wise woman told me this week, you steer yourself where you stare. Think about that again. You steer yourself where you stare. Now, she happens to live with me, so that's a bonus, because uh, she has lots of good wisdom that she imparts to me and, and encourages me with and fills my spirit with. But really think about what that means. My eyes are the conduit to my mind. So where I place my eyes has everything to do with where my mind directs my thoughts, where my mind directs my words, where my mind directs my actions. And the simple question i got to ask myself every day, am I fixing my eyes on Jesus? Because Paul did. And when he writes letters like this one to the Philippians, he speaks with the authority and the credibility of a man who was fully fixing his stare on Jesus Christ. He's in prison, yet he calls his imprisonment a blessing for the cause of Christ. It's not his circumstances, it's his Savior that he's concerned about. Could he have known, sitting in that prison cell, that this letter was going to be read throughout the world 2,000 years later, that men and women today are constantly referring back to it for guidance in their daily lives, in times when we're seeking that feeling of joy? In this final message on Philippians today, we're going to camp on four of the most important verses from it. One of them Dave read in our meditation. These are life verses, if you will, from this letter, as they give us direction as to where to fix our stare. And when we fix our stare on Christ, we position our minds, our words, and our actions to give more. And so you may be asking yourselves, well, what do we have to give? And I'm going to let you fill in all three blanks now, and then we're going to knock out each one of them more deeply. We all have three things to give. And in various quantities, according to God's provision and what we learn from the Bible, we each have three things to give to bring to the kingdom. We have our time, we have our talents, and we have our treasure. I'll say those to you again. We have our time, we have our talent, and we have our treasure. I want to start with Philippians 4, 6 through 7, when we start talking about our time. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. And I'm going to ask you to do some underlining here as well. I want you to underline in every situation, 
I want you to underline the words prayer and petition. I want you to underline with thanksgiving. Present your requests to God. And the peace of God, you can underline that. Actually, you know, it's God's word. We should be underlining everything, but I'm trying to highlight key points here. Peace of God, which transcends all understanding will, and this is the promise we have, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So every situation we face, by prayer and petition, we are called to pray with thanksgiving. And here's what God promises us when we pray. He will give us guarded hearts and guarded minds. Now, we may not see every prayer answered the way we want it answered, but what he promises us is this. I will give you guarded hearts and guarded minds. Now, I want you to each make this very applicable to your life. And I'm going to ask you this question. I want you to allow yourselves your mind, the, the time for your mind to take you there. Have you ever been in a position? Have you ever been in a position of such desperation where all you felt like is all I have left to do is pray? Have you ever been in that kind of a desperate situation? I want you to dwell on that for just a moment. I go back to the fall of 2005. And they say there's four things that probably are the greatest stressors in our lives. A new job, a move, the loss of a loved one, and a change in finances. <laughs> and I dealt with all four of them in about two months during the fall of 2005. We lost my grandpa. I had moved. I had started a very stressful job. And we had made the commitment that Beth was going to be home. And so I was just kind of worrying about how everything was going to land and feel. And all of a sudden, I just started feeling really anxious all the time. I started dealing with a lot of anxiety. And I remember one particular night, um, and my mom was there, and she'll probably remember this very well. It was Christmas time, and we were having a family dinner. And I had reached the point where I was so broken in that moment that I couldn't even get myself out of bed. I was so emotional. We had just lost Grandpa. I was really struggling for months after that. And it was through prayer and petition, through the love of people who surrounded me, who helped me pull myself out of that funk. But it was Christ, it was God, it was my faith that eventually, through my friends and family and those people who loved me, who helped get me out of that. And so here's what I suggest and here's what I strongly recommend to you. Put your own in the blank right there. And I want you to ask yourself, did you come to that point where you just fell to your knees and prayed? And did some, in some way, did God deliver you from that? Did God guard you? Did he protect you? Even as painful as it was, can you think of those times when God also delivered you? Because here's what I think a prayer looks like when we come to th with thanksgiving. My prayer should look like this. Father, I bring you this need. Father, I bring you this concern, and here's the thing. I bring it knowing that you are a gracious God who has delivered me before. You see how that works? In that very line, that very sentence, that very thought, I am recognizing and giving thanks to the God I'm asking something for. I recognize the fact that he has delivered before, and I bring him thanks to that. And I start making lists of things that, God, I am so thankful for. I'm going to be talking a lot about this next week for our Thanksgiving message. But the most important thing that we can do to start and end our day, I'm going to really get into this next week, is to find 10 or 15 minutes in a consistent favorite spot to pray, to study scripture, and give thanks to God. 
I spent a lot of time this past uh, summer talking about the 17-hour day rule. We give our seven hours of rest. Where do we put our 17 hours? God deserves my time first. And if that means it's before the kids are up, and if that means after the kids are in bed, that's when I have to give it to him. And i got to be honest with you, and I've shared with you this before, the moments where I don't give that time consistently, I pay the price. I pay the price because I'm not connected. And that's where my mind starts to get all rattled, and that's where life starts to speed up, and I don't feel that calm, and I don't feel that peace. I don't feel the protection when I'm connected to him that I do when I am. I don't know what this looks like for you if you're speeding in life or maybe you're redlining a little bit. But what I would ask you is to simply this. Take 10 to 15 minutes. Begin the habit of daily prayer, of daily time where you can restore yourselves in him. I talk about this over and over again, but when we gather in community to pray, it is impossible, I've noticed, it is impossible to pray together in community and feel an overwhelming feeling of anxiety. Have you ever noticed that? If you're in life group or whether we're doing our first Tuesday prayer or whether you're with your family, when you're truly praying together to God with prayer and petition, things kind of melt away, don't they? There's a peace. There's a strength. There's a comfort. And sometimes if that means I've got to put on my Beats headphones and put on some David Crowder and just go run, that's another way I can do it. But I need that connection. I need that connection to God. Keep this in mind. Bring every situation, not just the times you're struggling. I'm so busy now, now I have to pray because I got no other choice. How about this? How about in every situation, as Scripture teaches us here, how about in every situation we bring our prayers and petitions and we have that habit and we bring those prayers with thanksgiving because the promise is this. God says, I'm going to guard your hearts and I'm going to guard your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a great assurance. Number two, our talent. Dave read a piece of this. I'm going to add verse 9 to it as well. Paul writes this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, just underline excellent, praiseworthy. We could all underline all kinds of stuff here. But we fix our stare, we fix our eyes on what is excellent and praiseworthy. He says, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And here's a key line here. Again, the peace of God will be with you. If we bring these prayers, if we fix our eyes on those things that are excellent and admirable and praiseworthy, we have the promise that God will bring peace to our lives. I think too many people are not unleashing their talents for the kingdom all around our world because their minds are not focused always on what is pure and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy. Instead, we get caught up maybe in what others might think or we get caught up in other things that distract us, that don't fill us up. And we lose out on that time that we could be the difference makers that we can be. Henry David Thoreau once said that we all live lives of quiet desperation. And I don't want that to be true for any Christ follower in this church. I don't want us to be rooted in fear or feelings of resentment. I don't think to have any place in our walk with Christ. We need to continue to rid ourselves of those tendencies. And we need to focus our energies and our talents on ways that we can serve and give of our talents. 
I told our youth Wednesday night, I filled in for Aaron, he filled in for me last Sunday, I filled in for him Wednesday night. I told our kids um, at Encounter on Wednesday night that I've watched too many teenagers make life-altering decisions, things that are devastating to their lives, choices that they make. And I think the reason that they make these decisions sometimes, and sometimes they're tragic decisions, is because they do not have the sense They do not have a strong enough sense of their own value, their own worth. And as Christians, one of our responsibilities to our children, to our families, and to our neighbors, to each other, is to constantly reinforce in us and in each other that we have value. And that value means that we have talents to further the kingdom. That gives us time to serve, time to encourage gives us ideas for gifts to bring, ways we can give. It's finding a place for everybody to serve. That's how we use our talents. And our talents could be varied, but all of us bringing our talents together can make this amazing body continue to grow and change the community and change this world around us. And finally, today I want to share with you these verses. And this is our treasure. And this was a little bit of what you saw in the video. But I want you to notice what Paul writes here when he's writing back to these Philippians. He says, For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire, listen to what he really wants. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. This idea of this heart change, this change in my heart where I'm willing and more freely to give, not out of law, as we, as we saw up there, but out of a desire to serve, out of a desire from grace to give. And he goes on to say, I have received full payment and more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Aphrodite the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And listen to what he says here. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. I truly believe the more we give of ourselves, the more we give back, the more we get back. Love expands. The more we give, the more the influence expands. We come inside when there's fear. Fear shrivels. Love expands. That's what, Christ, that's what Paul is talking about here. I was sitting in, in, in the office this week. A teacher came to me. I talked about this at the beginning of, of the service. But we got a lot of kids running around who need coats. And here's just a little fact for all of you. If you took a compass and you stuck it right here at the Whiting Christian Church and you made that compass so that it could make a circle 20 miles in radius around the community of Whiting, here's what I can share with you. One out of every two people, and in some places, two out of every three people, are living at income levels that are considered to be either poverty or borderline poverty. That's a fact. That's true. There are needs all around us. And the simple question is, what are we, the church, going to do about the needs of those around us? You see, I see tithing, and we talked about tithing up here on this video a little bit. Tithing is a compact. We give to support our church. And I think the first mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel. It absolutely is. But there's a second piece of that. We love God, and we love our neighbors. And we do this together. And so we view the gifts that we bring, the things that we can give in terms of our resources, we give them with the idea that we're giving them to a church that is going to proclaim the gospel and that is going to serve the needs of those around it. I think about it like this. 
We sometimes take the kids out for ice cream cones, or we take the kids out for lunch, or we buy them a Gatorade after a ball game. And you know what happens when I buy my kid a, kids a Gatorade? They're sitting there drinking it. I reach over and say, hey, can I have a, a drink of that? You know what I always get? It drives me crazy. You know what they tell me? No. You know why they tell me no? Because in their mind, they think that they own this Gatorade. It's theirs. And I'll hear that. No, Dad, this is mine. And here's what I want to say to them. Ben, Joey, even Kate a little bit now. Guys, I can go back and buy five more Gatorades. I don't need the Gatorade you have. What I want to know is, do you have the heart to understand that I bought you that Gatorade? You don't own that. That's, that's as much mine as it is yours. I'm giving it to you as a gift. It's hard to explain that to an 11-year-old, but, that, but that's my point. My, my point is this. Every resource I have, every resource that you have, those are gifts from God. When he's asking us to give back a portion of that, he is simply asking us, just show me in your heart that you understand that I own everything that you own. That's tithing. And I see that as a parent every time my kid wants to hide his blue Gatorade. It drives me crazy. But we work on that. We work on the heart. God is working on our hearts every day. You give more, you will give, be given more. It's a heart change. And so we think about that when we think about our treasure. So here's how I want to close today. Time, treasure, talents. We're about ready to go to our harvest dinner. We can all smell it. Everybody's getting hungry. We're heading over there soon. But before we do, I want to close with this, this idea. Traditionally, harvest dinners like this one we're participating in today, they do go back to those pilgrim days. They go all the way back to the fall of 1621, if you want a, a fact. And it was a year when these men and women who came to America, they came to practice their faith without persecution, they came to this new world, they landed later than expected, and they went through an entire calendar year of unthinkable hardship and struggle and suffering. And yet they made it through. After losing a lot of people around them, those who were left had made it through. And they gathered on a day to celebrate God's provision for them. Now, I, because I've walked with a lot of you through some really difficult things this year, I know the kinds of years that some of you have had. I don't know the kinds of years that all of you have had, but I can guess these two things are true. You look back on this year as we participate in this harvest dinner, and you probably have had some ups to celebrate, and you've had some downs to, to endure. And for some of you, that may mean a, a loss in your family, Someone may not be at your table for the first time this year. I've been there. I know how that feels. And maybe there's been some financial setback or a frayed relationship with a loved one or uncertainty with your own health. I could go on and on and on about the daily things that we struggle with, the daily challenges that life throws our way. Our lives on this earth are temporary. And so we have to understand, too, that our bodies and our possessions are all temporary as well. I'll put it to you this way. When I'm sitting at the bedside of someone dying, you know what I do think about once in a while? There's going to come a day somewhere down the road, hopefully quite a while down the road, but I'm going to be on the other side of that conversation. And so are all of you. So we start taking stock in the life that we have, the lives that we are trying to give with, and the heaven that awaits us when we leave this earth. But these are weighty things, and they come through these kinds of conversations that we have when we're, when, we're, when we're being there with the sick and the dying. But I would also say this. You probably have a lot to celebrate 
Maybe there's new life in your family. Maybe there is a renewal of faith or energy that you are feeling in your family. There are new opportunities at work, renewed health. I can go on and on with that list as well. But here's the point I want to make. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes that there is a season for everything. And sometimes within a given year, we see a range of seasons up and down and all over the map. From sorrow to joy, from setback to delivery, from despair to joy again. When we gather this afternoon for this harvest dinner, I want us to keep our eyes on this. No matter what challenges you face this year, no matter what rewards you reaped this year, you are not alone in your journey. We celebrate the great, we endure the struggles, we do it together, we do it with each other. And our first prayer is to a God who promises to never forsake us, who promises to guard our hearts and minds, and a God who promises to bring us peace. And he promises us eternal life through Jesus Christ. And he gives us each other to walk through this earthly life together. I want to celebrate that today as we share this meal. We serve a God who loves us, who protects us, and who blesses us beyond our wildest imagination. And there is joy in giving of ourselves to him for his purposes. So let me say this one more time. It doesn't matter when you give your life to him or where you've been when you do. The point is that you do. And the truth is, when we do give our lives to Christ, he blesses us with the Holy Spirit that steers us toward him if we continue to stare in the right direction. Philippians 4.13, and this is cause for great thanksgiving, simply says this, I can do all things through Christ, who what? <laughs> who gives me strength. Let's celebrate the strength that he gives us. Let's celebrate the joy of our community. Let's celebrate the joy of his blessings as we gather over there. Will you join me in prayer? Father God, we are so so thankful for your blessings. We know that every great blessing comes from you. Our resources, our possessions, our time, our talents, our treasure, they are gifts from you on this earth. And we know that our time on this earth is a blink of an eye compared to the scope of eternity. And so we continue to just steer our vision, to put our eyes on you and pray that you continue to steer us, not only in our families, not only as, as individuals, but as a community of believers. Continue to steer us in the ways you would want us to go and the ways that we can best further your kingdom. We thank you for all of your blessings and we thank you for the promises you give us by faith in you and your son Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.